0: Hello, and welcome to Old News, our monthly roundup of the newest, oldest stories from archaeology and anthropology.
1: And I'm Amber. Today, we bring you a wide variety of items. We don't do that. We bring you a wide variety of items, from hidden mosques to very, very old drugs
0: to the best eyebrows in the whole world. Let's kick it off. All right. First up is an article from Live Science by Megan Gannon uh, about the possibly the oldest European mosque. Archaeologists have detected long-hidden features of a Visigothic city in Spain, including unexplored parts of a palace and a building that may be one of the oldest mosques in Europe. The researchers used a geomagnetic instrument to reveal walls and other structures still buried underground at Recopolis, which is in a rural area outside of Madrid. They found that the 1,400-year-old city was far more extensive than the ruins visible at the site today. Michael McCormick, a medievalist at Harvard University and one of the authors of the study says, in every space that we were able to survey, we found buildings and streets and passages. So the Visigoths were Germanic people who established a kingdom in southwestern Europe in late antiquity, just before the Middle Ages began. Uh, They famously (laughs) sacked Rome. (laughs) They're, They're famous for it. (laughs) They sacked Rome in four hundred ten CE. In the second half of the sixth century, the Iberian Peninsula was the center of Visigothic power. King Leovigild made his royal capital in Toledo, in Spain, and farther upstream along the Tagus River, he constructed a new town called Recopolis in 578 CE. It was new to him. Recopolis was constructed amid a lot of social turbulence. From Western Europe to China, the era is associated with mass migrations, imperial collapse, food shortages, and famine, as well as the first known outbreak of the bubonic plague.
1: Oh, hey!
0: Hey! Researchers have recently defined a period of rapid climate change. Oh, man. Hello. Too soon. (laughs) Themes (laughs) called the Late Antique Little Ice Age. (laughs) which lasted from 536 to about 660 CE and was brought on by a series of volcanic eruptions in the Northern Hemisphere. And so that climate change may have been the catalyst for the widespread upheaval. Uh, A further quote from McCormick. It's really remarkable to see the Visigothic monarchy coming together at this time and assembling the resources to be able to found a new city. What? Like, like it was some kind of like, (laughs) well, like times were tough and yet they managed to build this big city. Um, (laughs) I don't know. He's proud of them. The Visigothic rulers of the region were deposed during the Islamic conquest of 711 CE, oh, and the new heaven. geophysical evidence shows some signs of Muslim occupation before the city was abandoned around 800 CE.
1: That's neat. That is neat. Next up, um
0: <laughs> a joke that you're still proud of. On, on
1: a, a joke that I wrote. Um <laughs> What is the actual <laughs> What was the actual title? Let me check. Neolithic oh, like people humans. made hey. Shh. Neolithic people made fake islands more than fifty six hundred years ago. From Laura Gagel, the associate editor at Live Science, which I called nooks and crannogs. But um, t- <laughs> a what? new study has found that there are hundreds of tiny artificial islands around Scotland that were constructed out of boulders, clay, and timbers by Neolithic people around five thousand six hundred years ago. Researchers have known about these artificial islands known as Cranogs, there we go, for decades. Um, but many archaeologists thought the Cranogs were made more recently, in the Iron Age, around 2,800 years ago. But like, duh, they were Neolithic because they're made out of stone. They're not made out of iron. They would have rusted. Oh, my God. <laughs> the new finding not only shows that these Cranogs were much older than previously thought, but also they were likely, quote, special locations for Neolithic people. Oh. According to nearby pottery fragments found by modern divers,
0: <laughs> the thing that made them special is the pots seem to have been deliberately broken and thrown into the water, meaning that it was maybe a ritual deposit. Oh, no, I giggled at modern divers. Oh, okay,
1: <laughs> fairly, as opposed to Neolithic like divers. divers, they wear pants. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, how daring. Um initially, many researchers thought that Scotland's crannogs were built around 800 BCE and reused until post-medieval times in 1700 CE. But in the 1980s, hints began to emerge. E. I, I said 1700 CE. I know, but in the 1980s CE. Oh. oh but in the 1980s CE, um hints began to emerge <laughs> that some of these islands were made much earlier. In addition, in 2012 CE, Chris Murray, a former <laughs> Royal Navy diver, was he modern, though, found well-preserved Neolithic pots on the lake floor near some of these islands, and he alerted a local museum about the discovery. Good to man, investigate Chris. Two, U- two UK archaeologists, Duncan Garrow from the University of Reading and Fraser Sturt from the University <laughs> of Southampton. Southampton. Maybe he's maybe he's Scottish. and Stuart. Dirt. Um, teamed up in 2016 and 2017 to take a comprehensive look at several crannogs on the Outer Hebrides, an artificial island hotspot off the coast of northern Scotland. In so particular, tropical. in particular, they looked at islets in three lang- lakes: Loch Arnish, Loch Vorgestel, and Loch Langavot Yep.
0: Sorry, they're in, they're Gaelic names. I, I have no idea. No, but the, the bh
1: the bh is a v okay cornish
0: great lock
1: and borgastol and lock Longavat. yeah according to radiocarbon dating four of the Kranogs were i'm probably saying that wrong it, it's probably like crannog Kernish.
0: where pronounced island
1: uh were created between 3640 bce and 3360 bce Other evidence, including ground and underwater surveys, paleo-environmental coring and excavation, supported the idea that these particular islets dated to the Neolithic. Archaeologists have yet to find any Neolithic structures on the islands, and the team conducting this research have said more excavations
0: are needed. So the pictures from this article were really cool, because it's not just that they are islands in the middle of these lakes. There are often uh, underwater walkways to them, and I'm not sure if the walkways were underwater at the time of the Neolithic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but they're like they're sort of barely submerged. like in an aerial view, you can see the walkway. So I wonder if either the lake was lower or you're sort of meant to be kind of half wet when you're walking there.
1: Oh yeah, I don't know. Oh, like that weird art I sent you. Um. yes. <laughs> Uh, and, and what is it? In Krabi, in in Thailand, isn't that where it was? There was like a weird art performance. Yeah, the
0: like, <laughs> yeah. Well, now we have to link to that because I'm going to leave this in because that is such a weird thing.
1: I will definitely link to that weird, weird art. See, I told you that like I love when we were talking about art earlier, there's like art that moves me and then
0: art that like moves me like out the door away from here. And I love (laughs) both of those categories of art. (laughs) Thanks to you, I'm gaining an appreciation of the second category. Yes. Good. But very grudgingly. Oh
1: my God. Okay. Well. I know something else that could help you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Blaze it. Yes, this is Blaze It 420. Nice. Cannabis is one of the most infamous plants on the planet today, especially in light of rapidly changing uh, legislation in Europe and America. Despite the popularity of the plant for its psychoactive properties, very little is known about the earliest use or cultivation of cannabis for its mind-altering effects, Cannabis plants were cultivated in East Asia for their oily seeds and fiber from at least 4,000 BCE. However, the early cultivated varieties of cannabis, as well as most wild populations, have low levels of THC and other cannabinoid compounds with psychoactive properties. Therefore, it has been a long-standing mystery as to when and where specific varieties of the plant with higher levels of those compounds were first recognized and used by humans. Many historians place the origins of cannabis smoking on the ancient Central Asian steppes, but these arguments rely solely on a passage from a single ancient text from the late 1st millennium BCE, written by the Greek historian Herodotus. Yeah! (laughs) Your friend and mine. Archaeologists have thus long sought to identify concrete evidence for cannabis smoking in Eurasia, but to date there are few reliable, well-identified, and properly dated examples of early cannabis use. Until today. The researchers in the current study uncovered the early cannabis use when they sought to identify the function of ancient wooden burners discovered by archaeologists from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences who were excavating in the high mountainous region of western China. The burners were recovered from 2,500-year-old tombs in the Pamir Mountain Range. The international research team used a method called gas chromatography mass spectrometry, or GCMS, to isolate and identify compounds preserved in the burners. To their surprise, the chemical signature of the isolated compounds was an exact match to the chemical signature of cannabis. Moreover, the signature indicated a higher level of THC than is normally found in wild cannabis plants. The data produced by the research effort, which brought together archaeologists and laboratory scientists from Jena, Germany and Beijing, China, provides clear evidence that ancient people in the Pamir Mountains were burning specific varieties of cannabis that had higher THC levels. The findings corroborate nice. other early evidence for, <laughs> nice, for cannabis from burials further north in the Xinjiang region of China and in the Altai Mountains of Russia. The THC-containing residues were extracted from burners from a cemetery known as Jizankal in the remote Pamir Mountains. Some of the skeletons recovered from the site are super chill. Nice. No. Recovered from the site situated in modern-day western China have features that resembled those of contemporaneous peoples further west in Central Asia. Objects found in the burials also appear to link this population to peoples further west in the mountain foothills of Inner Asia. Additionally, Stable isotope studies on the human bones from the cemetery show that not all the people there uh, grew up locally. So these data fit with the idea that high-elevation mountain passes of Central and Eastern Asia... (laughs) High elevation, get it?
1: Man, this is like... We are insufferable. (sighs)
0: Sure are. (laughs) Uh, So those... Those high mountain passes of Central and Eastern Asia played a key role in early Trans-Eurasian exchange. Indeed, the Pamir region, today so remote, may once have sat astride a key ancient trade route of the early Silk Road. The Silk Road was, at certain times in the past, the single most important vector for cultural spread in the ancient world. I don't like cultural spread. It bothers me. Compared to cultivated varieties, wild cannabis plants contain lower levels of THC. It is still unclear whether the people buried at call actively cultivated cannabis or simply sought out higher THC-producing plants from, from wild plants. One theory is that cannabis plants will produce greater quantities of active compounds in response to increased UV radiation and other stressors related to growing at higher elevations. So maybe people roaming the high mountainous regions may have discovered more potent wild plants there and initiated a new kind of use of the plant. Do you even blaze, bruh? While modern cannabis is used primarily as a recreational drug or for medical applications, cannabis may have been used rather differently in the past. The evidence from Call suggests that people were burning cannabis at rituals commemorating the dead. They buried their kin in tombs over which they created circular mounds, stone rings, and striped patterns using black and white stones. So that's that's interesting. Yeah. I mean...
1: And well, we talked about... There was that... Um,
0: we did a Dirt After Dark on drugs.
1: But, but there, was, there was that there was a gentleman who was buried in Western right, Asia a, where he, in Western China where he's like,
0: he was buried with stocks with like, of, of cannabis
1: stocks of like dank, dank, sticky, sticky.
0: It's true. Yeah. They, they and like said like, like it wasn't for the fiber. Like,
1: dang. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's got the good stuff.
1: Like, no, they were like straight up nugs. Um, yeah,
0: no, it's well, <laughs> yeah, you're much no, hipper was, with the lingo than I am.
1: <laughs> no, it was like, it was full on like marijuana that had been yeah it was cultivated, cultivated for their resin
0: yeah. yeah for sure yeah well yeah, i mean once sticky, sticky. once i th- yeah <laughs> i feel like once humans figured out that they were like cool great let's get let's do more of that like i think it was probably a pretty quick road to understanding which parts of the plant to select for yeah
1: all right next up
0: I did not come up with... I did not come up with this. That is the title of this article. I did come up with Terrible Bagels.
1: All right. We're going to read Horde of the Rings. Yep. So we got a study... Tell me about these terrible bagels. A study of unusual cereal derived... I'll tell you about terrible bagels. The (laughs) West Coast. Am I right? So right. Let's keep going. Um, There's a study of unusual cereal derived rings... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> From the late Bronze Age site of Stillfried, okay, so they're no, donuts. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Stillfried der March in, auf Österreich. Um, so yeah, it's in Austria. They're, these are three ring striped, ring shaped objects, each around three centimeters across. So they're like big, well, mini, um, well, mini donuts. Analysis confirms that they are made of dough derived from barley and wheat. The authors were able to determine that the dough was made from fine quality flour and then most likely shaped from a wet cereal mixture and dried without baking. This is like um, I've I've had this. That's Ew. like the like the oat rings. It's like a. I had
0: it so for so elsewhere. For like, were you were you teething?
1: <laughs> no, no. It's like a type of cereal, and it's it's like.
0: Cracklin' Oat Bran?
1: No, no, they were terrible. This is Uh. a time-consuming preparation. This time-consuming preparation process differs from other foods known from the site, leading the authors to suggest that these cereal rings may not have been made for eating. (laughs) (laughs) These rings also bear a striking resemblance to clay rings interpreted as loom weights found in the same pit, and they may have been designed to imitate them. like why yeah the unusual context of these cereal rings and the care that went into making them suggests they may have been created for some unknown ritual purpose of course thus expanding the list of ways the cultures of this time period are known to have used cereal products
0: (laughs) well but maybe but not but maybe Um,
1: well i mean like you can make
0: play-doh out of flour no i know but like (laughs) the
1: (laughs) such since such remains, we only
0: know how to make circles (laughs)
1: Since such remains are scarce, the authors suggest that future studies sample more intensely for similar plant-based products that may typically be overlooked. Mm. A quote from one of the study's authors. Prehistoric bakers produce so much more than just bread. A late Bronze Age odd deposit from Central European site Stilfried in Austria yielded dough rings comp- comparable to italian tarolini discovered together with a larger number of clay loom weights likewise ring-shaped resulting in new insights into the material culture of food symbolism
0: and diversity of dishes so so two things diversity of dishes we have good and terrible um no so two things loom weights are i mean they are they can be circular in shape but the point is to keep whatever you are weaving taut so it like dangles down from the the yarn or the threads that you're weaving and it and it keeps them pulled taut so it's easier to weave the other thing is i didn't know what tarolini was when this article referenced it so i looked it up and it is defined as toroidal italian snack food like Mm. that's not helpful yeah (laughs) nor is it i mean yeah they're just little little circle cookies yeah. Okay. On to some knuckles. From circle cookies to a knuckle sandwich. But not really. Um, so this or is a as study my high lit- school principal said.
1: Sandridge. Sandridge? Sandridge. Like a turkey sandwich? He would call it a sandwich, and there was a young woman named Leslie Sandridge at my school, and I to this day wish that he had called her Leslie Sandwich.
0: Huh. Me too now. Well, so this is not that. But thank you for that charming story. I enjoyed <laughs> it very much. Now I'm going to call them sandwiches. I had a great sandwich for lunch today. This is what the people pay to hear. Okay, so this is a study led by PhD student named Christopher Dunmore at the School of Anthropology and Conservancy at the University of Kent. Dunmore. Wish you woulda. What?
1: Wish you woulda Dunmore.
0: Oh, I see what you I see what you done there. <laughs> Dunmore examined the internal bone structure called the trabeculi, or cancellous bone of great apes. So we have two types of bone. One is the cortical bone, which is the harder, uh, more thick bone on the outside, and then on the inside we've got spongy bone where your your like there are blood vessels in there. It gets what there's
1: you got you got veins in your bones.
0: Yeah, and the ends what they're it's it's living tissue. Your what? bones are living tissue. They're fed by they're fed oh, by blood vessels.
1: Oh what. And so he studied gibbons.
0: Nope. <laughs>
1: what? You said great apes.
0: Gibbons are lesser apes, and we're we and gorillas and orangutans and bonobos and chimps are yeah, great apes. Yeah, that's why
1: I made the joke. But then I was like, oh. wait,
0: sorry, <laughs> you can't you gibbons can't make jokes right. like that when I'm hot and tired.
1: <laughs> oh, fine. Oh. So tell me about these gibbon bones.
0: <laughs> You're a jerk. <laughs> Trabecular bone is a honeycomb structure that is found within most bones and changes depending on what that bone is used for during a lifetime. Bones are plastic, meaning what? not that they are made of not that they are made of petroleum-based <laughs> plastic material, but they're plastic in the sense that they change with use. They can change in structure. So, when it's preserved in fossils, researchers can learn more about how ancient apes as well as humans moved and interacted with their environment. So the study compared the internal bone structure of the knuckle joints in chimpanzee, bonobo, orangutan, and gorilla hands to assess whether this bone structure records how these apes move when knuckle-walking on the ground or hanging from trees. The researchers found the knuckle joints of orangutans were consistent with flexing the knuckles while grasping branches, while the joints of chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas were consistent with knuckle walking, the most frequent ways in which these animals move around in their respective environments. So that makes sense. The, the bone and the way that it shifts from you know infancy to adulthood is indicative of locomotion, of the way these apes moved around. The information will now enable scientists studying fossils to better understand whether ancient humans were swinging from trees or walking on the ground. So, ancient humans is an incorrect word choice. But, you know, so by the time we were what we would call ancient humans, we were very firmly bipedal and not so much in the trees anymore, but what they mean to say is if you look back along the the human lineage when you get far enough back there becomes it becomes doubtful whether um, the first hominins that we think of as bipedal were really truly bipedal, or spent half the you know part of their time walking around, or part of their time um, in trees. And so this study is going to help kind of parse that out. So Dunmore says, "Quote: For the first time, we see interesting internal bone patterns differentiating subtle differences between chimpanzee and gorilla knuckle walking, as well as arboreal grasping in orangutans." This matters because when we find ancient human hand fossils that preserve their internal structure, we can work out if they were probably swinging from trees during their lifetime, or if they were walking on the ground more like humans today. Knuckles.
1: That is, that is so cool. All right. Yeah. Well, okay. Next up,
0: the best story of all time.
1: <laughs> okay, so this
0: this one is entitled
1: Ugh, "Dogs." Um,
0: <laughs> an international
1: team of researchers led by comparative
0: psychologist what. Like psychology in animals as relates to humans.
1: (laughs) Julianne Kaminsky of the University of Portsmouth examined the anatomy and behavior of small groups of dogs and wolves and determined that dogs' facial anatomy evolved to enable better communication with humans. The anatomical study revealed that dogs have a small muscle which is either not present or is underdeveloped in wolves that raises the inner eyebrow. In the behavior portion of the investigation, wolves and dogs were exposed to unfamiliar human for a period of two minutes, and the researchers recorded the animal's eyebrow movements. The dogs raised their inner eyebrows more often and at higher intensities, Kaminsky said, resulting in the puppy dog eyes expression. The dogs also moved their eyebrows more often when humans were looking at them.
0: She's <laughs> just going, ah. yeah. Ah.
1: <laughs> she said she and her colleagues, suggests that the raising of inner eyebrows mimics facial expressions made by human infants and thus triggers a nurturing response in humans. Humans may have had an unconscious <laughs> preference for dogs with expressive faces leading to an evolutionary
0: advantage. Aww. Uh. Uh-huh. <coughs> good dogs. Good, dog. good job, Calypso. What a good dog. What else do you have to say about it?
1: What do you think about this? <laughs> okay thank you thank you
0: <laughs> over to me <laughs> well what's next is distinctively less okay, cute yeah, than doggy this eyebrows you posted on
1: facebook and i was like these chimpanzees went crabbing i'm and sorry I'm like, what is that yeah i was like and i imagined them like crab, crab walking didn't... and i was like ah <laughs>
0: No, 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 no. That's I'm already, awful. I'm like scared of chimpanzees, no.
1: so like the thought of them like crab walking yeah, towards me, me, I was yeah. like, oh no, what is this Guillermo del Toro nightmare?
0: No, no, no. Oh, it's it's not that, but it's also not great. And also, if you like Amber are sensitive to harm befalling tortoises, uh, skip okay, this one. Bye. Skip until you hear Amber talking. So this is a two part story. Uh, one article is from Archaeology Magazine. The second is from National Geographic. So first is the the crabs. Um, an international team of researchers has spotted chimpanzees in the rainforests of Guinea in West Africa catching and eating freshwater crabs. Kathleen Koops of the University of Zurich said the chimps were observed turning over stones and churning up the water with their fingers to look for crabs. The research also suggests that the chimps fished for crabs during the dry and rainy seasons, regardless of whether ripe fruit was available. The chimps did appear to fish more often when they were eating fewer ants, however, and female chimps with young were found to spend more time fishing than males. Coop suggests the sodium, calcium, and fatty acids in the shellfish may be critical to infant and maternal health. Early humans may have fished in forest streams as well, she explained. It had been previously thought that human ancestors only began to eat aquatic animals some two million years ago when they moved out of forests and closer to lakes, rivers, or coastlines. But, you know, maybe this pushes the timeline a little farther back. And then the second part of this story from National Geographic uh, reports on a study in the journal Scientific Reports in which scientists report seven chimpanzees breaking open forest hingeback tortoises in Gabon's Loango National Park. The behavior occurred on multiple occasions, over 5,000 hours of observation, and the primates often shared the meat with others in their group. This is the first time any chimpanzee has been documented eating any kind of reptile. It's also unique because the way in which the primates eat these tortoises, slamming them against tree branches and trunks, is a type of percussive technology that is akin to tool use. Um, so it's already known that chimps engage in other percussive acts such as smashing open nuts with stones and breaking apart termite mounds. The consumption of tortoise meat appears to be a new behavior, though. so it's unclear whether they learned that from somewhere or this is a unique behavior that uh, they sort of that arose independently of of seeing someone or a different animal um, eating a tortoise. I'm not sure, but it's really neat, kind of sad, but neat.
1: Well, I'm glad they're eating them.
0: Yeah, as opposed to just smashing we'll, and leaving. I we'll
1: don't know what they do, what those chimps do to other animals.
0: Oh, yeah, well. It's not cool. I'm glad they're eating them, too.
1: What's next? All right. This is something from the Siberian Times, which, like, is it legit?
0: I love the Siberian Times. I can't Times. tell if
1: it's legit. Why wouldn't it be I legit? I
0: It has I great know, stories. That's why I don't think it's legit. <laughs> Why can't you accept because, a good thing? Like nothing is good. <laughs> oh boy.
1: But these polychromatic rock paintings but, in Siberia, they're all right. Are pretty good. Yeah. Ahem. You're just everybody's a critic. Mostly me. Paintings found in the Altai Mountains mm. show ancient figures with round horns and feathers on their heads. Some have been interpreted as celestial bodies, while others are artful depictions of animals and birds. Okay. Uh, The finds are from an ancient, previously untouched burial in Karakol Village in the Altai Republic. The paintings were originally uncovered in 1985, but are now yielding new and unexpected secrets. Scientists were surprised by the fact that the rock drawings were made in three colors, white, red, and black. The first case of polychrome rock paintings ever found in Siberia. The remains of the people buried inside the stone graves were also painted in the same colors with spots of red ochre found below eye sockets and traces of a black and silvery mineral called specularite prominent in the eyebrows area. But then comes the really fascinating aspects of these ancient paintings. The colorful images on these stones were made at different times and using an elaborate technique. The earliest images were engravings of elks mountain goats and running people with round horns on their heads then slabs of rock with the petroglyphs were broken off the mountain taken into the tomb and turned upside down to decorate its insides next and slightly on top of the petroglyphs were made drawings of 11 human-like figures to complete them the prehistoric artist had should do a lot more than just mixing the techniques of engraving and drawing with mineral paints. The ochre that formed the pigments was heat-treated at specific temperatures to achieve the desired colors. Then that ochre was mixed with animal fats and applied to the paintings. This shows a pretty sophisticated understanding of the material properties of ochre and how to manipulate those properties, not to mention a cultural framework incorporating these images and whatever they might have meant to the people who made them.
0: Yeah, so ochre is a it's an iron oxide, and it can come in a lot of different colors. But also, you can change the color by application of heat. And so, like this, ha- this means that like they had a color in mind, and made it. And that's really cool. Like very kind of cool conceptually. Very hot. Yeah, cool and hot, and also cool. Okay, let's talk about a decrease in Neanderthal fertility. Oh,
1: the declining birth hey. rates. Oh, I bet, I bet there were mm-hmm. um, far-right figures in Neanderthal society that oh, talked about how boy. the humans are going to replace them with the decreasing birth rates. Uh,
0: I want to leave. <laughs> I want to leave this podcast. <laughs> um, A new hypothesis for Neanderthal extinction supported by population <laughs> modeling... <laughs> is put forward in a new study by Anna Gioianni from X Marseille Université, France. What? X. It's pronounced X. X Marseille Université. Oui. A-I-X is pronounced X. Anyway, it's uh, published May 29th, 2019 in the Open Access Journal, PLOS One. So, basically, this is a study based on um, computer modeling of populations. So... Reading from this article, the lack of empirical data allowing testing of hypotheses is one of the biggest challenges for researchers studying Neanderthal extinction. Many hypotheses involve catastrophic events such as disease or climate change. In order to test alternative hypothetical extinction scenarios, Giovanni and colleagues created a Neanderthal population model allowing them to explore demographic factors which might have resulted in declining populations and population extinction over a period of 4,000 to 10,000 years, which lines up with what we know from the Neanderthal archaeological record. The researchers created baseline population settings for their Neanderthal extinction model, so for example survival, migration, and fertility rates, based on observational data on modern hunter-gatherer groups, existing populations of large apes, and available Neanderthal data from earlier studies. The authors defined populations as extinct when they fell below 5,000 individuals. So the authors saw... So basically they they set up all these parameters and then played with them, altering each one individually to see how they affected the overall survival rate of the whole population. So the authors saw that in their model, extinction would have been possible within 10,000 years with a decrease in fertility rates of young Neanderthal females, so less than 20 years old, of just 2.7%. If the fertility rate decreased by 8%, extinction occurred within 4,000 years which is really ramping it up, Um, if this decrease in fertility was amplified by a reduction in survival of infants, children less than one year old, a decrease in survival of just 0.4% could have led to extinction in 10,000 years. So the main purpose of the study was to explore possible extinction scenarios, not to come up with a definitive cause of Neanderthal extinction. But given that it's such a small decrease in in fertility rates, um, it's, it's got really a tremendous effect if the models are accurate. So that's, that's really interesting. Yeah.
1: Wow. That's wild. I know.
0: And also, I mean, I understand why they would say the populations are extinct if they're below 5,000 individuals. Cause at that point the gene pool is going to be too small, but still 5,000 right. seems like a lot of people, but I guess in terms of a, a global population, it's not. Anyway, so this last one is right. is kind of a longer one, and I purposely left it for you because I thought you might have some some things to say about it. So why don't we hop into that?
1: Yeah. Okay. So this is um, a callback to our episode um, on revolts and revolution, um, specifically about Masada, mm-hmm. um, which is in the modern state of Israel. The tagline, this is from Haaretz.
0: It's Um, it's it's pronounced haaretz,
1: but they don't they don't put the the hamza in it most of the time. Is the hamza? So I thought it was. Is the hamza a thing that makes the hamza the glottal stop? Yeah, it's a it's a consonant. So it's haaretz. It's it's haaretz. The tagline is: How reliable was Josephus anyway? After a protracted siege by the Roman tenth legion, the situation of the Sakari The Jewish rebels holed up in the mountain fortress of Masada became hopeless. The Jewish rebels, led by Eleazar bin Yair, decided to end their own lives rather than be slaughtered or fall captive and be enslaved by their enemies. This event, the suicide of nearly a thousand Jewish rebels, is one of the most famous stories in Jewish history. But did it happen? (laughs) The only source we have for the story of Masada and numerous other reported events from the time is the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, author of the book, The Jewish War. Had Josephus not written it and had it not come down to us, no one would have thought a mass suicide had taken place on the desert plateau. Josephus is, in fact, our only source, not only for the events of Masada, but for many other things we think we know about the period, notably nearly all that we know about the reign of King Herod, the different Jewish factions that fought amongst themselves during the war against the Romans, and much more. So the question is, how reliable is Josephus? First up. Who was Josephus anyway? Uh, Josephus was the second son of Matthias, uh, an aristocratic Jewish priest. He was born in Jerusalem in 37 CE. When the great Jewish revolt broke out in 66 CE, the Jerusalemite aristocracy appointed him military governor of the Galilee to prepare for the imminent Roman onslaught. By June, the Romans had taken most of the Galilee and lay siege to the town of Yodfat. Josephus and his garrison deflected the Roman attempts to take the town for a time, But after 47 days, the Romans managed to breach the walls. Yodfat was destroyed and its inhabitants were slaughtered. According to Josephus, 40,000 were killed by the Romans and 1,200 were taken captive and enslaved. But these numbers are are likely quite exaggerated because the town itself was far too small to hold that many people in it. Josephus says that as Yodfat fell, he and another 40 prominent Jews hid in a cave. He says he advocated for surrender, but was outvoted by those who advocated suicide. Because Jews are forbidden to take their own lives, Josephus says they drew lots, determining who would kill whom. One by one, the survivors were killed until either by chance or by providence, only he and another man remained, and the two sur- resolved to <laughs> surrender. <laughs> when Josephus surrendered to Vespasian, he flattered him by claiming that he received a divine revelation that the general would become emperor. What he did. Um, this likely saved his life. After two and a half years as a Roman prisoner, when the Roman Senate proclaimed Vespasian as emperor and Josephus' prophecy was thusly, thusly proven true, the historian was released from captivity. Again, we know this from Josephus. Yeah. <laughs> Josephus, now on the Roman side, was there to see Jerusalem fall in 70 CE and watched the temple go up in flames, which he says took place on the 10th day of Av. Yeah, the, this contradicts... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> what? This this contradicts the traditional Jewish account that the temple was burned a day earlier on the ninth of Av. This discrepancy is
0: difficult to reconcile. Yeah, I mean, well, okay. So I was thinking a different. We'll we'll find out more when we when you read on. But like I was thinking, a difference of one day. You know, it was probably a period of of trauma. Like, what you know is the does this sort of break the Josephus case wide open? But keep reading, because it gets interesting.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. I.
0: Yeah. Perhaps Josephus
1: took some creative license and added an extra day before the fall of Jerusalem so he could claim that the city fell on the exact same date that the first temple fell based on Jeremiah 52.12, the 10th day of Av. Indeed, Josephus' description of the day before the fall, the night, is suspiciously uneventful, with the besieging forces illogically resting and the Jewish defenders uncharacter- uncharacteristically not staging any counterattacks. On the other hand, it is also possible that it was the rabbis who moved the day of the destruction of the sim- second temple to a day earlier for some theological reason. <laughs> just, they don't postulate any
0: like some theological reason. We don't know.
1: Yeah, so like so maybe they made it up or he made it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, does not, uh, this, of course, does not necessarily mean that Josephus' accounts of the events are made up. He could have relied on witness testimony, perhaps from the Roman legionnaires that had captured Masada or from Jewish survivors who found their way to Rome as slaves. But Josephus doesn't tell us how he learned about the events he described. But even granting the possibility that Josephus did not have sources for the events that transpired, it does seem a bit suspicious that the end of the siege of Masada is so similar to the end of the siege at Yodfa in his telling. Furthermore, Josephus provides a beautiful speech allegedly made by the leader of the Sicarii, Eliezer ben Yair, to the bravest of his men. We have it in our power to die nobly and in freedom. Our fate at the break of day is certain capture, but there is still the free choice of a noble death with those we hold most dear. Josephus clearly made up this speech, since by his own telling, all those who would have heard the speech would have killed themselves. We must conclude that Josephus had no problem making stuff up. This is not surprising. It was the norm among ancient historians to sacrifice truth and accuracy for beauty and rhetoric. Indeed, the decision of the decision of vanquished warriors to kill themselves rather than fall into the hands of their enemies was a rather recurring motif among ancient historians appearing in many histories. Um, Prof. Shai Cohen of the Harvard Divinity School compiled a list of 16 examples in an article published in 1982. It is not a stretch to imagine that Josephus would borrow this theme from one of of these other histories and apply it to the Sicarii in order to make them, and by extension Jews, seem more noble and praiseworthy in the eyes of the Romans. After all, this is clearly the goal of his books. It is likely, then, that the mass suicide atop Masada was made up by Josephus. Indeed, at least some of the details of the story provided by Josephus have not been supported by archaeological excavation at Masada. Even if Josephus is evidently not completely reliable, this does not mean that we should disregard everything he tells us as a mere fabrication. Like all other texts from antiquity, the facts stated therein need to be evaluated critically. Some are surely false, but some are likely to be true.
0: Yeah, so this is really interesting, especially given the weight that the story from Masada takes with some of the more nationalistic side of, of Israelis. Uh, the the military
1: yeah yep specifically the military they do they they yeah and so i when we recorded the episode on this and we talked about masada Mm -hmm. um and i was doing the show notes and i was looking at like where you pulled that stuff from like there is a spin because because this is like the story of masada is is an emotional one. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with the like,
0: like, it was the, the last, the speech that's, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, as the author points out, everyone else was dead. Everybody was dead. So how, like, yeah. So it's very interesting that this, um, was dropped in the magazine
0: of hearts Yeah, Because. Yeah. I'm so, like, given the amount of doubt that it casts on I mean it presents it in a very logical way. They're like, okay, well here's this piece of evidence and here's this piece of evidence and what does that tell us? But still, like it really destabilizes this story that's incredibly important to a lot a lot of people.
1: Yeah. And and this is also like taking a look at like contemporary political alignments, um, Haaretz is one of the further left. Yeah publications in israel yep um but no this is this is interesting
0: yeah it's a cool it's a cool perspective and you know something to keep in mind when we talk about historical accounts not just herodotus and like pliny but any historical accounts written from a particular framework or written within a particular social context and that needs to be this is why, taken into account. This
1: is why we need archaeology. This is why you need the archaeological
0: record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ta-da! da Science! Yeah. Cool. So that's that's going to wrap up our roundup. Thank you all for your support as Patreon subscribers, and thank you for listening, and we will have more old news for you next month. Yeah. And we got other stuff in the, in the pipeline. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy, do we. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Oh gosh, stay tuned for Dirt After Dark and hold on to your butts. And if you aren't a a subscriber at that level, maybe for this month, go ahead and become a subscriber cuz wow. Cuz you're wow. going to want to hold on to that butt. Hold on to that butt. Find somebody else's butt and also hold on to that because it's like a it's like a two butt story. Okay. Specifically, cool.
1: Specifically be careful about which butts butt you hold
0: on to. Yep. <laughs> Well, okay, there's bye. there's your teaser. Bye.
1: <laughs> bye. Goodbye. bye. Goodbye.
0: Goodbye. Bye.